3: Welcome to Season 3, Episode 44 of They Walk Among Us, a podcast dedicated to UK true crime. Please listen to Season 3, Episode 42 and Episode 43 for Parts 1 and 2 of this three-part case. This is the final episode of Season 3. You can now pre order your copy of our new book, They Walk Among Us, available on Thursday, May 30th, 2019, in paperback, ebook, and audiobook. Listener caution is advised as this episode contains adult themes and descriptions that some listeners may find distressing. On October 28th 1986, after a total of nine and a half hours of deliberation, the jury had to decide if Jeremy Bamble was guilty of killing his family, blaming the murders on his sister in order to inherit his family's estate. During their deliberations, the jury had asked the judge if the blood in the silencer was definitely Sheila Cafells. He said it was. The seven men and five women on the jury could not reach a unanimous decision, and so the judge said he would accept a majority verdict. While two members of the jury were uncertain of Jeremy Bamber's guilt, ten were not. Bamba was found guilty of the murders of his adoptive parents, Neville and June Bamba, his sister Sheila Caffell, and her two twin sons, Nicholas and Daniel. As the five charges were read out, Bamba was pale-faced and closed his eyes. Judge Justice Drake addressed the 25-year-old and said, "'It shows that you, young man though you are, have a warped, callous and evil mind,' concealed behind an outwardly presentable civilised manner. You fired shot after shot into them and also into the two little boys aged six who you murdered in cold blood while they were asleep in their beds. I believe that you did so partly out of greed because although you were a well-off young man for your age, you were impatient for more money and possessions. But you also killed out of an arrogance in your nature that made you resent any form of parental restrictions or criticism of your behaviour. You wanted to be a master of your own life and to enjoy an inheritance, much of which would have come to you anyway in the fullness of time. The judge handed down five life sentences and recommended that Jeremy Bamber would serve a minimum of 25 years before he would be eligible for parole. Judge Justice Drake cautioned that much consideration would need to be given when deciding to release into society someone who had murdered five people. One of the jury members inquired that as Jeremy Bamber had been convicted of murder, was it possible that he could still obtain his inheritance? They were told he could not and the beneficiaries would most likely be Pamela Bowflower, June Bamba's sister, her husband Robert, and children David Bowflower, and Anne Eaton.
4: The Bamba's remaining family, the ones who found the initial clues that led the police first to doubt Sheila's guilt and then to arrest Jeremy, left the court close to tears. Bamba had played his part well, acting the distraught and grieving son, all the while playing on Sheila Caffell's psychotic illness. Bamber despised his family, his parents especially. He was angry at the way they had tried to control his life. Bamber will be in jail for at least the next 25 years. Never ever to receive a penny from the family that one night, shot by shot, he murdered in such a cold-blooded way. So as the prison van drove off, Essex police were left considering the judge's criticisms of their performance and his final remark that Jeremy Bamber had so nearly got away
3: with five murders. Outside the courtroom, the Deputy Chief Constable of Essex Police had some tough questions to answer, as his constabulary had been criticised throughout the trial for their handling of the investigation. They at first believed that Sheila Caffell had murdered her family and then committed suicide, until a silencer was found by the wider family during a search of the property, and Julie Mugford came forward to confess that Bamba was responsible. Around 20 officers entered the property, including the chief superintendent, but not one of them spotted the silencer. Three officers specifically searched the gun cupboard, removing weapons and ammunition. It was also reported in the press that the detectives also did not attach any significance to Sheila's spotless feet. There had been a considerable amount of blood throughout the house, in the kitchen, on the stairs and in the master bedroom, but none was present on Sheila's feet, a remarkable achievement for someone who it was initially believed had carried out the massacre. Eaton would tell police that Sheila did not know one end of the gun from another, and it was only her brother Jeremy who told police how experienced with firearms she was. Finally, during Sheila Cafell's post-mortem, Alaperidol, a drug used to treat schizophrenia had been found in her system. The drugs had been injected each month at a home by a healthcare professional, and the sedative could have potentially left her physically unable to carry out the attack, not to mention overpower her physically fit father. It was noted that before the shooting, her doctor had reduced her dose, but regardless, Neville was far more physically imposing. Bamba
4: begins five life sentences this morning, Police chiefs begin their review of their much-criticised investigation, for if it had not been for Bamber's jilted girlfriend turning him in and the efforts of family relatives to find a bloodstained silencer, the 25-year-old farmhand would have already been reaping the rewards of his perfect murder plan, the half a million pounds inheritance.
3: Deputy Chief Constable Ronald Stone did admit mistakes had been made when the investigation initially followed the exact path which Bamber had intended.
4: We have uh, a scene of a crime which has been very cunningly arranged because he was a cunning man and we visited the scene and a judgement was made. Now, the officers misdirected themselves, I'm prepared to admit that,
3: but I see no reason to, uh, to apportion blame. Deputy Chief Constable Stone went on to say, with the benefit of science hindsight, It could be said that judgment made at the scene of the crime by senior officers was misdirected, but I must emphasise the careful way in which the whole affair had been planned. While assumptions were made, no firm conclusion was drawn, and the evidence collected eventually enabled the investigating team to pursue what proved to be the final line of inquiry. Colin Caffell, Sheila's ex-husband, genuinely believed that Jeremy Bamber was innocent, after seeing him in tears following the shooting. But Kafel felt something did not seem right when he discovered that Sheila was found in the master bedroom near her mother. He said, If Sheila had killed herself, she would have laid down beside the twins, never by her mother. Kafel would also later point out in a piece for the Guardian newspaper that although Sheila's body showed no signs of a struggle, all Jeremy needed to say was, if you shut up and keep still, I'll promise not to harm the twins. And she wouldn't have moved a hair. Jean Botel, the family's housekeeper, described what life had been like after the murders.
5: We're sort of coming to terms with it gradually. You know. Feels as if they've just walked out of the house and left everything as it was, because the house is exactly the same as it was.
3: Julie Mugford's mother said there was always something strange about jeremy
5: i always had a lot of reservations about jeremy he was he was very strange at times and used to say the most peculiar things i can't remember particular instances but i used to say why does jeremy say these peculiar things and julie said don't worry he just tries to shock you he likes to he lives in a kind of water mitty world and goes around saying things to shock people
3: Mary Mugford said her daughter had to identify the bodies of the victims, as Jeremy did not go with her.
5: I really, could, I don't think you can ever forgive anybody a thing like that. I mean, if, as he, as he says, he didn't have the feelings for Julie anymore after the murders, why did he let her go through such an experience? I can never understand that. Why take her to the funerals? Why, why put her through all this horror?
3: Robert Bowflower, June Bamber's brother-in-law, issued a statement in which he said she was a loving and supportive farmer's wife and mother to her adoptive children. He wished to dispel any rumours that June was overly religious. Robert Bowflower went on to praise the performance of the Essex police.
1: I have nothing but
4: admiration for the painstaking and diligent manner in which I believe they set out to achieve the task that was assigned to them And I consider it was to the highest standards of their
3: profession. Robert Bowflower's son David spoke to the press outside the courtroom. It's very sad. Very sad. sad. Feelings of relief and a lot of sadness.
6: Why sadness?
3: Because no one wins, we all lose.
6: Can't bring them back.
3: Soon after the trial, Home Secretary at the time Douglas Heard called on Essex police to produce a report on the incident, as the force had been widely lambasted in the press for their handling of the crime. Evidence had been destroyed and the victims' bodies cremated before a full investigation could be carried out. The request was welcomed by the Essex Chief Constable Robert Bunyard who said the report would correct any false impressions made by the media. Following the investigation, 18 recommendations would be put forward, which Douglas Heard urged all police forces to follow for any future inquiries. Jeremy Bamber was taken to Wormwood Scrubs Prison in Hammersmith, London, to serve out his sentence. A week after the trial, Jeremy Bamber lodged an appeal against his sentence. His defence counsel, Geoffrey Rivlin QC, argued that his client did not get a fair trial as the judge repeatedly ridiculed the defence's stance and the prosecution's description of the defence's argument, that was often referred to as fanciful, was reiterated by the judge. Also, throughout the entire case, both prosecution and defence were worked on the basis that Sheila was the last person to die. However, the judge at one point said this was speculation. Rivlin argued that this was a very dangerous thing to do, and on this basis alone, Bamba should be granted leave to appeal. Finally, as the judge summed up the case, Rivlin claimed that he weighed too heavily on the assumption that Bamba was guilty. Two and a half years would pass until Geoffrey Rivlin QC would get to argue Bamber's case before Judge Lord Lane, Lord Chief Justice at the time, Mr Justice Henry and Mr Justice Roach at the Court of Appeal. The application to grant leave to appeal had at first been dismissed by a single trial judge, Mr Justice Caulfield. Through a privately funded application, where the prosecution was not present, Rivlin argued his client's case that the judge's summing up was biased against the defence and it also raised the question of Julie Mugford's motives as she had sold her story to the news of the world. Judge Justice Drake was criticised for not raising this question with her during the trial as there were claims she had received payment before the proceedings were even over. Despite Jeffrey Rivlin's arguments, the three appeal judges disagreed and dismissed the appeal, refusing permission for a full hearing. Lord Chief Justice Lord Lane stated, The trial judge put across the case fully and fairly. There is no proper basis for the criticisms of this summing up, and there is nothing unsafe or unsatisfactory about this conviction. There is no material misdirection. Lord Lane told the then Home Secretary Douglas Hurd, that he believed Bamba should never be released. During February 1991, just under two years after Bamba's application to be granted leave to appeal was denied, it was reported that an investigation into the shooting at White House Farm was going to be opened by the Police Complaints Authority. The basis for the inquiry was due to police evidence, which was now being called unsound. 26 complaints had been made by Jeremy Bamber's defense team, which included perjury and tampering with evidence. However, after 19 months, the Police Complaints authorities' investigation into the shooting decided that no action should be taken against the officers involved. with rumours still persisting that perhaps there was someone else involved in the farmhouse shooting. Towards the end of 1991, the sport newspaper had written an article on the killings and suggested Jeremy Bamber was innocent and another member of the family was responsible. Anthony Pargiter was a cousin to Bamber, and while the sport did not directly point the finger at him, it certainly raised some eyebrows as to his involvement. The article did not go unnoticed, and Anthony Pargeter sued the sport newspaper for libel. While the newspaper printed two apologies, the first being hid amongst the back pages between two adverts for sexual services and a second in a larger font, the case found its way to the High Court, and Pargeter would win £40,000 in compensation, along with an estimated £50,000 in legal costs. As the years passed, a groundswell of support began protesting Jeremy Bamber's innocence. In September 1993, a submission was sent to the Home Office on his behalf, and a civil liberties group, which included several barristers, announced they had evidence that raised doubts about the convictions. They even went so far as to claim that some evidence may have been fabricated the request asked that the Home Office refer the case back to the Court of Appeal. John Haywood, the forensic scientist who found the blood inside the silencer, concluded that it belonged to Sheila Caffell's blood group, although curiously, this was the same blood type as prosecution witness Robert Bowflower, who had handled the silencer after it was found. A letter sent to Essex Police a week before the trial from the head of biology at Huntingdon Science Laboratories, said the blood could be from either Sheila Caffell or Robert Bowflower, but the scientist who gave testimony to the court said this only came from Sheila. Coincidentally, the possibility that Robert might have cut his finger before he handled the silencer did come up at trial. However, this was denied by Robert, who became ever more agitated with Jeffrey Rivlin's line of questioning while in no way was anyone pointing a finger at robert bowflower it highlighted the broad range of blood groups the campaign was also stating that john haywood now accepted that there was a small possibility the blood could have very well have been a mixture which belonged to the same blood group as neville and or june bamba also during his cross examination at trial Haywood said he had never seen backspatter cause blood to be sucked back into a weapon in the way in which the prosecution were describing. This was seized upon by Bamber's campaign, who said the judge did not direct the jury accordingly when he said that the silencer was of great importance and the evidence relating to it could on its own lead to the conclusion that the defendant was guilty. In the submission, further forensic experts disputed the methods with which the tests were carried out and could have led to an error of interpretation. Freddie Mead, a ballistics expert, also said there were not any grounds on which they could claim a silencer was involved. Bamber's defense did not have access to all of the evidence that would have been collected by Essex police. However, they believed if they did, this would exonerate him. By June of the following year, Jeremy Bamber was granted leave by the High Court to challenge the decision of the Home Secretary to deny him access to the forensic evidence used to convict him. The Home Office had used the findings in its decision to reject the application to reopen the case. By September 1994... The High Court challenge insisting that the analysis to convict Jeremy Bamber was based on flawed evidence was rejected and Bamber would not be granted leave to appeal. Single judge, Justice Robin Ald said that the defence's own expert noted that the possibility that there had been flaws in the evidence analysis was small and after doing their own tests, the Home Office described it as an unlikely possibility. The judge also denied Bamba's request to seek a judicial review of the Home Office's decision to withhold evidence.
1: Despite Mr
3: Justice Auld's verdict, a month later, in a landmark ruling, judges within the High Court overruled the Home Secretary, and demanded that details of the decision-making process for all rejections be made available. Prior to this, the Home Office had not been obliged to release such information for cases in which they had rejected a referral to the Court of Appeal. The verdict would have a significant impact on alleged miscarriages of justice, as at the time the Criminal Cases Review Commission, who would later investigate such matters, did not exist. This allowed Jeremy Bamber's defense team access to forensic evidence that had otherwise been withheld by the home secretary
4: it's a wonderful judgment i think that uh, it's a far reaching judgment that affects the lives of several hundred prisoners uh, it blows a hole wide open in the department called c3 which has been dealing with these miscarriages of justice over the years they can no longer act in a secretive way they can no longer hide behind the home secretary uh, they must be open to public scrutiny and i have to say that once the public learn what it is that the home secretary has been concealing from the defendants and from these appellants then uh, they're going to be in great difficulty and i think that uh, the home secretary is going to be red faced all around and i think that they're the judgment today blows a hole wide open in that department they can no longer be secret they can no longer hide behind the home secretary they're really going to be open to public scrutiny and it's not before time that they public...
3: in their decision the High Court judges commented that only the highest standards of fairness will suffice Bamba's defense team was sure with the new evidence available, the case would be reopened.
0: When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At Bluenile.com, you can design a one of a kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. to find out if it’s right for you.
3: This episode of They Walk Among Us is brought to you in association with Santair. Ever entered a seemingly perfect space only to feel like something was missing. That’s where Senair comes in. Scent Air diffusers are sleek and fill your space with vivid fragrance for up to 300 hours. And the Scent Air app lets you schedule your fragrance and control your intensity right from your phone. What's more, all of Scent Air's more than 60 fragrances are phthalate-free, cruelty-free, safer families in EcoVad is certified sustainable. Differentiate your space with scent. Try Luxury Home Fragrance Trusted by the Pros by going to centair.com and using promo code Among Us for an extra 25% off your first order. That's promo code Among Us for an extra 25% off your first order at centair.com. In Britain, most inmates who are sentenced to life are given a set tariff or minimum sentence which they need to serve before they are considered for parole providing they are no longer a risk to the public. For prisoners that have no prospect of release, they are sentenced to what is referred to as a whole life order. These are handed down to only the most serious offenders. Before the early 90s, however, there were some prisoners who were handed a minimum term, but unknown to them, they were never going to be released. At the time, the Home Secretary could secretly alter their tariff or minimum term without an explanation. This was until a decision by the House of Lords when it was ruled prisoners who are on this secret life tariff should be informed in writing. Within a month of being told that further information regarding his case was to be released that could pave the way for his case to be reopened, Jeremy Bamber was informed he was going to die behind bars. During April of 1995, Jeremy Bamber appealed to the High Court regarding his new life tariff. His argument was seen as a test case for over a dozen murderers who had also been informed they would be spending the rest of their lives behind bars. This included Arthur Hutchinson, Archibald Hall, otherwise known as Ray Fontaine, and Dr John Bucksh. Peter Sutcliffe, otherwise known as the Yorkshire Ripper, was noticeably absent from the list as he had been transferred to a psychiatric hospital. While Bamba's counsel, Richard Clayton, understood the gravity of the crimes his client had been convicted of, he disputed the consistency of the Home Secretary's decision that some murderers who had been convicted of killing police officers would not face the same punishment. In additional correspondence, Bamber was then told that due to the horrific nature of the crime and his behaviour, this was the reasoning behind the decision. But the High Court, Mr. Justice Popplewell, denied Bamba's appeal and said, if leave were to be given, this application would be doomed to failure. Yet more bad news would come Jeremy Bamba's way throughout 1995, when the Home Secretary limited prisoners' ability to contact the outside world it was decided that upon entering a prison to serve a custodial sentence, an inmate would need to provide a list of telephone numbers, which, if agreed, they would be allowed to contact through a payphone. In the past, Bamba had the ability to argue his case on radio stations and television networks. He had done so during a live BBC phone-in, which had prompted criticism, so the ban was put in place. A spokesperson for the Prison Reform Trust argued this decision could be at odds with the European Convention on Human Rights. However, the Home Office demanded action to enforce the ban, noting prisoners would still be able to use the written word. As the years rolled by with Bamba now in his mid-thirties and 11 years into his life sentence, much was changing in the outside world further restrictions were put in place on British journalists, limiting their ability to report in the media the material they had discovered while visiting prisoners. While some argued that these restrictions would hinder a journalist's ability to highlight miscarriages of justice, others believed these inmates were put rightly where they belong and did not deserve a platform through which they could release a wave of untruths. In the media, prisoner number A5352AC had been labelled one of the most notorious killers of the last 20 years. The trial judge referred to him as evil beyond belief, and the Home Secretary was insistent that he should never be released due to the horrific nature of the killings. But regardless, at the start of 2001, it was announced that Jeremy Bamber's conviction was headed to the Court of Appeal. The submission to review his case had been transferred from the Home Office to the Criminal Cases Review Commission in 1997, when they assumed the responsibility to investigate alleged miscarriages of justice. After several months of examination, the CCRC believed that it should, in fact, be referred. From a website set up by his supporters, Bamba claimed... I was wrongly convicted in 1986 of murdering five members of my family and I've been in jail for nearly 16 years. I have protested my innocence through all the usual channels and tried hard to find a successful path to the appeal courts. While in maximum security Whitemore Prison in Cambridgeshire, Bamber also explained that crucial forensic information had since been disclosed to his legal team. It was being argued that there was now doubt that the blood in the silencer belonged to Sheila, and with this initial assumption challenged, it questioned the foundation of the prosecution's case that she could not have shot herself. Jeremy Bamber's solicitor at the time, Ewan Smith, spoke to the media about the new claims regarding the silencer.
6: It's significant because what it will show is there is no trace of Sheila Caffell's DNA in the silencer, and therefore, going back to the jury's question 15 or 16 years ago, it shows that in fact there is every possibility that Sheila Caffell's blood is not and was not in the silencer.
3: The trial judge, Justice Morris Drake, had placed a high significance on the silencer evidence, directing the jury that it was of great importance. Additionally, it was being postulated that it may have been a police officer who found the silencer elsewhere in the farmhouse and put it back in the gun cupboard while tidying up, though police would say this claim was nonsense. The wheels of justice turned slowly. And it wasn't until October of 2002 that an Appeal Court would review Bamba's case.
5: Bamba has always maintained his innocence and has run a very public campaign from his prison cell. But it was only last year that the Criminal Cases Review Commission agreed to refer it back to the Court of Appeal based on the new DNA claims. The case is expected to last three weeks, but with new evidence still coming in, it may actually last longer. At his original trial, the judge described Jeremy Bamber as evil beyond belief, but today his lawyer, Mr. Michael Turner QC, listed a catalogue of police errors which he said meant the convictions must be overturned. He said firearms officers had blundered onto the crime scene, disturbing vital evidence, and certain matters were deliberately withheld to bolster the prosecution case.
3: The appeal was heard by Lord Justice Kay, Mr. Justice Wright, and Mr. Justice Enrique. Michael Turner QC addressed the judges and spoke about his client's 16 grounds for appeal. Turner said, You are asked to consider whether certain matters were deliberately withheld so as to unfairly bolster the prosecution's case and therefore secure a conviction. If non-disclosure is a fact, it would be difficult to conclude other than it was withheld deliberately. At the trial, the Crown's case centred on ten key points. All but four of those we suggest are either destroyed or seriously weakened by the material now available. Scientific evidence would be put forward to support the argument that it was June Bamba's blood in the silencer which may have been mixed with her husband's. Frustratingly, in a blow to all involved... Police had destroyed all blood-based evidence in February 1996. They had not informed the Crown Prosecution Service, the Home Secretary, the Forensic Science Service or the Appellant Jeremy Bamber. Later, the CCRC would condemn this act as being in breach of the force's own guidelines. The argument to identify whose blood it really was could not be proven as the only source of June and Neville Bamber's DNA was now unavailable. Furthermore, swabs taken from Sheila's hands at the crime scene that showed no traces of lead had been contaminated and rejected by the forensic laboratory in Huntingdon, although this was never disclosed to the defense. An officer sent the same swabs in a batch of other evidence and did not disclose to the laboratory they had already rejected the item, which appeared to be new evidence. Police had also failed to disclose their doubts over the timing of the phone calls. Michael Turner QC questioned Julie Smirchansky, formerly Julie Munkford, about her motives after he alleged that she had sold her story to the News of the World for £25,000 before the initial trial ended. Turner also suggested that evidence Julie had been involved in check fraud before the trial had been suppressed by the prosecution. This would bolster the character of their star witness, he said. Moreover, the disarray in the kitchen that saw chairs upended and brown sugar spilt over the floor could very well have been caused by over a dozen members of the armed tactical response team when they stormed the property. If this new information about the circumstances of entry was accurate, then the information coming from the officers can be discredited, Michael Turner said. A number of photographs had also not been disclosed to the defence at the trial, one of which pictured writing scratched into a bedroom cupboard in the twins' bedroom. It read, I hate this place. Michael Turner said this was likely written by Sheila Caffell, as it was consistent with her mental state at the time, and he claimed this evidence was also deliberately withheld to unfairly influence the prosecution's case. Sergeant Neil Davidson told the Appeal Court that it was him that resubmitted the swabs after receiving instruction from his superior, Detective Chief Inspector Ian Wright, who was managing the scenes of crime officers. In a hurried call with DCI Wright, Sergeant Davidson was told to submit the swabs again as they had been rejected. DCI Wright did not tell the sergeant that they had been contaminated, and the exhibit form made no mention the evidence was being resubmitted. During the original trial, Sergeant Davidson told the court he had 18 months of scenes of crime officer experience, however did not examine the floor of the gun cupboard for bloodstains, and failed to thoroughly examine the work surfaces in the kitchen. Victor Temple QC argued for the Crown and described the defence's claims surrounding the officer's forceful entry into the property as fanciful. He said it was very clear that disarray in the kitchen was the result of a struggle between Neville Bamber and his attacker. Besides, officers would not have rushed in as they could not be sure an attacker was still not at the scene. Addressing the allegations by Bamber's legal team of impropriety, dishonesty and conspiracy to pervert the course of justice, Victor Temple QC said that when you look closely at their argument, the entire edifice crumbles to nothing. He stated, there has been no evidence placed before your lordships to enable this court to doubt the safety of these convictions. At the end of the day, naught plus naught equals naught, and if that is right, these convictions for murder remain safe. we would invite you to uphold these convictions.
5: Relatives of the Bamber family left court today showing little emotion while he was taken back to his cell in a prison van. At his original trial, the judge described Jeremy Bamber's conduct as evil beyond belief. But today his barrister, Michael Turner QC, said there were so many police errors in the investigation, his convictions must be overturned.
3: Following a review by the three court judges, an appeal decision was announced on December 12, 2002. In a 522-point judgment, Lord Justice Kay, Mr. Justice Wright and Mr. Justice Enrique all believed there was no doubt about the safety of Jeremy Bamber's conviction. His appeal was denied, with all 16 grounds of appeal dismissed. In summary of their judgment, Lord Justice Case spoke on behalf of the three judges. He stated it was right that the CCRC referred the case, but said, We do not doubt the safety of the verdicts, and we have recorded in our judgment the fact that the more we examine the detail of the case, the more likely we thought it to be that the jury were right. He continued, There was no conduct on the part of police or the prosecution, which would have adversely affected the jury's verdict. This no doubt came as a relief to the Essex police, who Bamber had accused of framing him. Testimony from countless armed officers stated they did not disturb the scene, refuting the defence's argument that police caused the disarray in the kitchen. Furthermore, DNA testing completed on the silencer did not prove to be the smoking gun that Bamba's defence team thought it was. Initially, a strong female presence and low male presence were found in the blood. DNA samples were taken from Sheila's birth mother and Pamela Bowflower, June's sister. This was used by Bamba's defence team to claim that the strong female component could not be Sheila's. When additional testing was carried out, forensic scientists for both sides could not confirm whether the DNA profiles came from blood or other cellular matter, and up to three profiles were discovered, although faint. The results were extraordinarily complex and challenging to understand, and no one could explain how the profiles got there. As the silencer had been disassembled and reassembled countless times, this would mean trace evidence could have been transferred. This also meant that the blood inside the silencer could well have come from June Bamba, not Sheila. However, due to the way the device had been previously handled, it invalidated the result. Following the verdict, Jeremy's cousin Anne Eaton said, We are particularly saddened that Sheila's memory is constantly tarnished by Bamba. The judge at the original trial described Bamber as evil, almost beyond belief, and no one can doubt that assessment, having listened to the details of this appeal. Paul Eaton, husband to Anne, also spoke to the press.
6: Surely after yet another investigation, this process is now at an end. We hope now to move on with our lives, safe in the knowledge that Bamber is behind bars for the rest of his life.
3: Paul Eaton went on to say, We never doubted for a second that this was the only possible decision they could reach and that justice was indeed done in 1986. The past few weeks have been particularly harrowing for us. Although the appeal has only been in the public eye for three weeks, we have had to bear this nightmare periodically for the past 17 years. Unless new evidence was brought to light, a further appeal by Jeremy Bamba would not be possible. Jeremy's supporters had set up a website dedicated to protesting his innocence. After the verdict, a message from Bamba read, Let no one doubt that in years to come justice will be achieved and my conviction will be quashed. Documents from the trial and appeal were uploaded to the site, with Jeremy posting a further message which read, The Court of Appeal has turned my appeal down. I, therefore, feel it important that the evidence is made available to the public so that they can make up their own minds on this matter. Contained in the following pages is proof of my innocence backed up by documentation that was not available for me to use at my original trial. I am innocent, and the following facts speak for themselves. Shortly after the appeal verdict... Bamber also posted that he would guarantee a reward of £1 million to anyone that could secure his release from prison. It read that the sizeable reward would be paid to any witness, police, ex-police, or member of the public whose evidence adds the vital proof to anything you see on my website. Not surprisingly, questions were asked how Bamba could possibly obtain such a large amount of money while stuck in a jail cell. Almost a year later, it was reported that from full Sutton Maximum Security Prison near York, Jeremy Bamber would be suing his surviving relatives for £1.3 million. He claimed that his family members had influenced his grandmother to change her will, cutting him out of an inheritance that would have seen him obtain a share in some of the family's property. On top of that, he wanted interest on the lost inheritance and backdated rent which he claimed he was owed. This was the second time he had tried to recover family assets, with the first relating to a claim that he was owed a share of his family's caravan site. Both claims would ultimately be dismissed. The years behind the walls of a prison did not pass peacefully for Jeremy Bamber. On Saturday, May 30th, 2004, while on a payphone, he was attacked from behind by a fellow inmate taken to York District Hospital Bamba suffered superficial cuts to his throat which required twenty eight stitches and after treatment he was taken back to his cell in full Sutton. his lawyer at the time Giovanni di Stefano gave an interview
5: the prison service and prison staff are undermanned underpaid underrated and underdeveloped uh, and it's something that um, the Secretary of State needs to pay careful attention uh, to there. There are not enough prison officers, there's not enough staff, they are not paid properly and they are not being trained
3: uh, uh, in in a proper manner. On an earlier occasion Bamba faced another assault when an inmate had tried to attack him with a knife, however he was able to defend himself with a broken bottle. Up to this point he had been moved to nearly 90 prison cells across 17 different locations throughout Britain. In April 2007, Bamber had been in prison for almost 20 years. He submitted to a polygraph test. It was the first to be sat by a prisoner in the UK, and in total the process took around 100 minutes. From full Sutton prison, he was asked directly if he was responsible for the deaths of his family and if he was inside the property when they were shot. He replied no to the questions. The results showed no sign of deception. Terry Mullins, an expert in polygraph testing, was quoted as saying, I am absolutely convinced he is innocent. He did not show any sign of a reaction, not a flicker which would have shown up guilt. For those who believe in this method of analysis, Bamba was either an incredible liar, or he did not kill his family. Nearly five years after his attack at Full Sutton, the new evidence that Bamber had been hoping for was to be presented to the Criminal Cases Review Commission. It was being alleged that in newly released photographs of the crime scene, it looked as though evidence may have been tampered with. Director of the New York-based Laboratory for Forensic Science and an expert in blood spatter analysis, Herbert Leon McDonnell, had reviewed the negatives and believed that there had been some unexplained movement of Sheila Kefels' body, along with some indications that the rifle had been moved throughout the series of photographs. A solicitor for Bamba's defence team said, The evidence includes previously undisclosed crime scene photographs. We have worked extremely hard in having highly experienced forensic experts consider this new evidence and all of the findings they have made have been very positive indeed. The year before, in 2008, Bamba had faced another setback when Mr Justice Tugendhat told him that he agreed with an earlier decision that as his crimes were so exceptionally serious, Bamba would remain behind bars for life. This was the second time Bamba had tried to appeal his whole life term. Lord Chief Justice Lord Judge sitting with Mr Justice David Clark and Mr Justice Wynne Williams would also dismiss his application for permission to appeal against his life tariff. Lord Judge said, We can see no possible basis for interfering with Mr Justice Tugendhat's decision. It was neither wrong in principle nor did it produce a manifestly excessive result. We would, however, and unusually go further. On conviction of these crimes, even when committed by a relatively young man, punishment and retribution in the form of a whole-life order was fully justified. As the further analysis of the newly disclosed crime scene photos took place at the start of 2010, a photographic expert, Peter Southurst, who at that point had been providing technical advice to scenes of crime officers for 50 years and who had helped give expert testimony on numerous cases, reached a startling conclusion. The mantelpiece, which the prosecution believed had been damaged during the shooter's struggle with Neville Bamber, may not have been scratched until over a month after the incident. The photograph shown to the jury was not taken until September 10th 34 days after the shooting. The photographic expert could also find no trace of paint chips on the floor below the mantelpiece, which he would expect based on the scratches and indentations to the wood.
4: In this case, the scratch marks underneath the mantel shelf turned out to be the most significant um, bit of evidence that we came across.
3: The scratch marks, which were central plank to the prosecution's assertions, those scratch marks... Um, It now appears were not in fact made on the night of the murders and were in fact made at some point afterwards. For that reason, the significance of Mr Souther's findings really cannot be overestimated.
4: The court had believed that these um, scratch marks underneath the mantle of the sheriff had taken place during the incident itself. That was something which the uh, jury and the prosecution relied upon in order to convict Mr Bamber of the um, crime. It was possible to line up all these um, pictures in jigsaw fashion uh, to show that the um, scratch mark uh, from the underside of the mantel did not extend into the uh, picture of the mantel taken on the 7th of August, the time of the incident itself. So the marks had been put there after the original incident.
3: Peter Southurst had been asked by Bamba's defence team to review the photographs back in 2008 and came to the case with an open mind. There had also been pictures of Sheila's body taken on August 7th, 1985 at 10.30am. In the photograph, you can see wet blood coming from the wounds. The blood had not coagulated at the time the pictures were taken, and Bamber's defense team indicated that this meant she could not have died before 7am. Further grounds for re-examination included ballistic reports and x-rays that highlighted that not all of the bullets were fired through the silencer. Also, call logs were obtained which had only recently been disclosed by Essex police, and showed there may have been two calls received in the early hours of August 7th, 1985. One of the notes, timed at 3.26am, read, Daughter goes berserk. Mr. Bamba, White House Farm, Tolls Hunt, Darcy, daughter Sheila Bamba, aged 26 years, has got hold of one of my guns. After hearing the news of the findings, speaking from full Sutton Prison, Jeremy Bamber said, "This is what I've been waiting nearly 25 years for. It's 100% solid proof. They cannot look at this new evidence and say it doesn't cast doubt on my conviction." David Beauflower, Bamber's cousin who found the silencer, spoke about the chance of him getting released.
4: Our safety obviously would be quite significantly threatened. Um, we've all made it very clear we think he's guilty, and, and if a guilty person was allowed to come out, then I would dare say that he would want some retribution to those people that have su- suggested his his um, his guilt.
3: David Bowflower went on to say, "The jury convicted Bamber after they heard the evidence and were told by the judge that any one of these three elements would have been enough to convict him." The timing of the phone calls was just one. He's as guilty as hell and should spend the rest of his life in jail. I have a family and if he was ever let out, I would be seriously concerned for our safety. It would be a terrible injustice if he were ever to get off on a technicality. On Monday, January 31st, 2011, the Criminal Cases Review Commission began to examine all the fresh evidence that had been received from Jeremy Bamber's legal team. Bamber hoped their decision, which would be made in the CCRC's offices in Birmingham, would pave the way for a new appeal. The new submission included information that had not been seen in any previous appeals. Through analysis of police radio communications, it suggested there was someone in the farmhouse while the police and Jeremy Bamber stood outside. These logs showed that around 4am on August 7th 1985, police believed they saw a figure inside the house with the movement of a person seen through an upstairs window. An hour and a half later, the log states, Firearms teams in conversation with person in farmhouse, before more officers were called. During this period, Jeremy was outside with the police as an officer used a megaphone in an attempt to contact an individual that appeared to be moving inside. Before the armed response team breached the farmhouse, a firearms officer reported they saw a rifle propped up against the window around 7.30am. When they stormed in eight minutes later, the gun was gone. Entry records log that an officer reported one dead male, one dead female were found downstairs, yet court documents made no mention of this. Could the body have been moved? Or perhaps, Sheila was incapacitated after she shot herself in the kitchen. Her body was spotted by police, then she got up while officers were out of the room, she walked upstairs, then fired a second shot to end her life in the bedroom. Unlikely, but this has not stopped a number of theories being pursued throughout the chat rooms of the internet. Bamba's defence team volunteered to cover the costs of sorting through any additional undisclosed evidence, however the Essex police force refused. In the new crime scene photographs not available at the time of the trial, it pictured the Bible found next to Sheila's body. A letter was poking out from its pages and was titled love one another. This piece of evidence was requested from Essex Police, however the defence were told it had been destroyed. The Bible was never seen at the trial, despite repeated requests from Bambas Council that it be forensically examined as it was stained with blood. Also in the newly obtained photographs, it showed there had been some movement of Sheila's body and the rifle used in the killings was in different places. Chris Bewes, who had since retired from the police force, was a sergeant at the time, and one of the first officers to arrive at the scene. After being shown the newly disclosed photos, he reportedly said, I don't think any of the police involved at the time would disagree that it was a badly handled investigation. Some of the photos indicated that there was blood on Sheila's hands and feet, despite the prosecution's insistence that they were free from any debris or staining, specifically from blood. This was a considerable find, as the judge directed the jury, saying, It is a fact that when she was found she had no marks of blood on the soles of her feet and no marks of having handled bullets on her hands. Could this have swayed the jury? The Criminal Cases Review Commission would decide Jeremy Bamba's fate. Bamba was asked by the Guardian newspaper about how he felt when he received news of his life tariff. He said, I just found that incredible that they could hand you a death sentence using old age as the tool when I'd already been sentenced to 25 years in jail. I have never contemplated the thought that I'm not going to win. Unfortunately for Jeremy Bamber, his latest attempt to win his freedom was rejected by the Criminal Cases Review Commission and his case would not be referred to the Court of Appeal. The call logs that supposedly referenced two calls, one made at 3.26am and then another at 3.36am, were in fact one, so Essex Police would claim. Jeremy Bamber's call to PC West was logged at 3.36am However, a police car was dispatched at 3.35am, one minute before. At trial, this point was raised, and it was agreed that PC West had merely misread a digital clock. It should have been 3.26am. Police argued the multiple notes made by a civilian member of staff and PC West related to a single call. A further entry on the call log time 3.26am reads, Message passed to CD by son of Mr. Bamba after the phone went dead. An 89-page report detailing the CCRC's reasoning was sent to Bamba's legal team. Despite his continuing rejections, Bamba assembled a new legal team, and almost a year to the day after his appeal rejection from the CCRC, a new submission was sent to them, which had been produced based on evidence from the world's most revered ballistic experts. Simon McKay, Bamba's new solicitor, said, The evidence of three senior and respected pathologists that the wounds to Sheila Kefell are consistent with the rifle having been fired without the silencer fitted shakes the safety of Jeremy Bamber's convictions to their core. The fresh expert evidence aligns itself with what police officers found at the scene on the morning of the killings and the combined views of those who assessed the position then, namely, and tragically, that Sheila Kefell murdered her family, then took her own life. A peer-reviewed pathology assessment stated that the silencer was never used in the shootings. The assessment was supported by the Chief Medical Examiner of the U.S. State of Maryland, David Fowler, the former Chief Medical Examiner of Virginia, Marcella Ferreira, and Lubiza Dragovich, Chief Medical Examiner of Oakland County in Michigan. A forensic scientist based in Oxfordshire, Dr. John Manlove, also supported the finding that a silencer was not used after examining burn marks on Neville Bamber's body. From its size and shape, this mark could possibly have been caused by the hot muzzle of a firearm without a sound moderator, he said. The burn marks were raised during the original trial, but described as a mystery and dismissed. Chief of Burn Services at the Arizona Burn Center, Daniel Caruso, also agreed with Dr. John Manlove's findings, saying, In my professional opinion, the three wounds sustained by Ralph Neville Bamber are consistent in size, shape, and diameter, with a threaded end of a Model 525 Anschutz rifle barrel heated sufficiently to cause injury. My examination did not reveal anything to contradict the suicide theory. there were now also allegations by Jeremy Bamber that there had been two silencers which Essex Police had tried to cover up. When the silencer was logged into evidence, the reference used related to the person who found it. This was at first marked as SJB stroke 1, corresponding with DCS Stan Jones who was passed it by David Bowflower. However, upon realising it was in fact David Bowflower who discovered it, The evidence item was amended to DB Stroke 1. It was amended again as Bowflower had the same initials as an officer working the case and it was finally changed to DRB Stroke 1. This was referred to the CCRC. To exacerbate matters, it was reported that Essex Police had failed to disclose thousands of pages of documentation and over 200 photographs of the crime scene. There have been three successive court orders to fully disclose all of the evidence to the defence. However, vital information is missing, including elements of the Police Complaints Authority's investigation completed back in 1991. Human rights campaigner Peter Tatchell spoke about the undisclosed documents.
6: I'm not in a position to say whether Jeremy Bamber is innocent or guilty but I do have grave concerns about the way in which Essex police are refusing to hand over to Jeremy's legal defense team, 10 key bundles of evidence, totaling hundreds of documents and photographs. Um, justice requires transparency. We not only have to ensure that justice is done, but it's seen to be done. I would appeal to the chief counsel of Essex to make those documents and those photographs available um, that's in the interests of Jeremy's right to fair justice, but it's also in the interests of the wider public. We need to be certain that the guilty man is the man behind bars. And the way to clear this up is to release these documents.
1: It
3: seems as though the documents were being held under public interest immunity principles. The Crown can invoke these principles and refuse to disclose evidence even if it would be helpful to the defense, if 1. It is detrimental to national security. 2. It has come from an informant and could risk their life if revealed. 3. It would reveal the location of a police surveillance post. 4. It revealed information that would jeopardize the safety of a child or disclose data from social services. And finally, 5. It would reveal how police report and collate information, in turn allowing criminals to frustrate future investigations. While some experts were sure Sheila Caffell had taken her own life after murdering her parents and children, in April 2012 the Criminal Cases Review Commission rejected this argument and Jeremy Bamber would not be allowed before the Court of Appeal. Part of the CCRC's response read, Matters of pure speculation or unsubstantiated allegation constitute neither new evidence nor new argument capable of giving rise to a real possibility that the Court of Appeal will quash a conviction. Neither can such a real possibility arise from the culmination of multiple unsubstantiated allegations. Essex Police were not consistent with their record-keeping and it used multiple evidence numbers when referencing the silencer. Also, the rifle barrel would not get hot enough in general use to cause the burn marks. Following their response, a CCRC spokesman added, this is a final decision and brings to a close the commission's current longest running case. The commission has given due consideration to all the submissions made, old and new, before making a final decision on whether to refer the case to the Court of Appeal. As Bamba's legal team were reportedly determined to carry on the fight, they continued to investigate other potential evidence that could exonerate their client, and the following month, they also lodged a legal challenge against the Criminal Cases Review Commission. Bamber's lawyer claimed the body who investigate alleged miscarriages of justice had unlawfully overstepped its powers, and they would be applying for an application to permit a judicial review. However, towards the end of 2012, The High Court rejected the application with one of the judges stating that a challenge is impossible to mount. So where are we now? Documents relating to the investigation are constantly being scrutinised, and during one such exercise, a page from a report produced by the police for the Court of Appeal during Bamba's second failed appeal in 2002 made reference to a PC Nicholas Milbank monitoring a 999 call made from White House Farm at 6:09 a.m. on the morning of the murders. While this had raised questions especially as Jeremy Bamber was outside with police at the time. PC Milbank, who attended the scene and kept a diary of calls being made in his logbook, was not interviewed during the appeal, and no further documentation regarding this piece of information has been disclosed by Essex Police. In July 2013, Jeremy Bamber and a collective of inmates made an appeal to the Grand Chamber of the European Court of Human Rights regarding their whole-life tariffs. Sixteen of the seventeen judges voted that it was inhumane and degrading treatment, though added, In finding a violation in this case, however, the court did not intend to give the applicants any prospect of immediate release.
6: In practice, what it means is that people are no longer going to be put in jail and the key thrown away. Uh, That even with the most uh, serious offenders, they will have the hope that one day they may achieve release. Jeremy has infringed the human rights of five other people. And um, from a point of view of law, uh, we are now infringing his rights. And I can't see anything wrong with that. We're talking about some of the most brutal killers in our recent history. People who've committed appalling crimes and who've rightly been told they will never walk the streets again. I don't simply understand why human rights judges would think it's appropriate to even open up the possibility of those people having the opportunity to put their case for release.
5: Even in the most serious cases, you have to offer some kind of hope. Uh, The possibility of redemption, perhaps after many years. You also have to do that to protect staff because if you take all hope away from somebody, they have nothing to lose and that could put staff in danger. A year
3: later, the UK Court of Appeal backed whole life tariffs And the following year, the European Court of Human Rights would rule that life should mean life for the most severe offenders.
4: The Court has held that the statutory scheme enacted by Parliament, which enables judges to pass whole life orders, is entirely compatible with the European Convention on Human Rights. Judges should therefore continue, as they have done, to impose whole life orders, in those rare and exceptional cases, which fall within the statutory scheme.
3: There was an exception, the UK Home Secretary. In exceptional circumstances, they have the power to free a prisoner on a whole life order. In July 2015, Jeremy Bamber's supporters were splashed across the UK national headlines when they set up a campaign to mark his 30th year of being behind bars and to raise awareness of his alleged unjust incarceration. At the time, the UK had seen a rise in the popularity of cooking shows like the Great British Bake Off, so a baking event was announced called the Bamber Bake Off. From his supporters website, Jeremy Bamber uploaded recipes and accompanying images and it was suggested that his supporters post their baked creations on Instagram. Some of the recipes included an upside-down pineapple cake and a Victoria sponge which had an accompanying image that was titled Mum's Favourite. It was labelled by the press as distasteful and disrespectful. Rosie Dixon the chief executive of charity Support After Murder and Manslaughter said, If they want to campaign, that's fine, but don't do it in this way. In response, one of Bamba's advocates, Trudy Benjamin, replied, The Bamba Bake reminds people that he had a loving family who he was close to. It reminds us that he is a human being who has lost loved ones, despite the media perception of him being some sort of monster. The debate over who really caused the deaths of the Bamba family, an incident which popular culture has named the White House Farm Murders, rages ever on. And that debate is certainly felt no more so than by the families of those involved. Could the shootings have been committed by Sheila Caffell? One notable statement from a witness who had seen her and her sons at the farmhouse a day before the shooting said, She seemed happy. She was jumping and skipping about with the children and the dog. She always seemed a very loving mother. Or could the shooting at White House Farm have been committed by Jeremy Bamber? He was convicted of the crimes but has made numerous attempts to have his convictions overturned and sentence reduced. But to date, every attempt has failed.
6: I know that I was outside with the police when they saw someone moving around in the house, when they were talking to someone inside the house. Not only do I know I didn't murder my family, but I know that they know I didn't murder my family.
3: Jeremy Bamber has remained a Category A prisoner and continues to protest his innocence. He spends time poring over the police files from his cell, hoping to find that all-important piece of the puzzle that could exonerate him. He teaches other prisoners to read and write and transcribes books into Braille. While Jeremy Bamber has a group of dedicated supporters... None of his extended family believes he is innocent. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit theywalkamonguspodcast.com. Both Rosanna and I would like to thank all our listeners for their words of encouragement and a special thanks to our Patreon supporters, as without their donations, this podcast would not be possible. They Walk Among Us will return for Season 4 on Wednesday, May 29th.